Hebrews chapter 12 is the passage that we want to begin our, our study in this morning. Pastor David has been preaching from Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, and uh, talking about what it's like to live a life of faith. Chapter 12 is a continuation of that study. It's a really a good study for us because this last week we just learned that after the construction is going to be done here this summer in this building, in this room, we thought maybe there's a possibility that we could come back for the fall and continue to meet here. We got the word that that's not going to be possible. So, where are we going to meet? Mm. Does that cause your heart to flutter a little bit like, un momento por favor, Lord, what, 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 what's the deal here? The question is, is God in control? Now there's nobody here but us so we can talk. Is God in control? Yes. yes. Can you trust him? Yes. Even with this, since we got word that there was a possibility that we couldn't continue to meet here, we've been looking high and low for empty buildings. Nothing has opened up. What was the word? Oh, yet. See, it takes two of us to preach this message. <laughs> Nothing has opened up yet. It reminds me of 1972 when my wife Ruth and I went to Albany, Georgia to start a church. And I began looking around for a place to meet. 125 places said no. 125 places. Finally, we found a hotel where the man said, you can meet here. And it was awesome. Beautiful, uh, huge room and, 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 and a boardroom for a nursery and a classroom for, for a Sunday school class for the kids. And it was wonderful. So on March the 12th, 1972, we started Circle Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia. In three months, we hit 100. Shortly thereafter, the manager of the hotel came to me after a Sunday morning service and he said, Pastor Huffman, I have bad news. You're not going to be able to meet here anymore. I said, why not? He said, well, you know, this is a hotel. And so when everybody's singing in the services on Sunday morning, it's waking up the people that have rooms in the next floor. And so... We just can't let that happen. So you have two weeks to find a new place. Now, after I had gotten 125 no's before I found this place, you can imagine what that did to me. I went home that afternoon and, and I said, Lord, I don't understand what's going on. You've led us here to start the church. Things are going fantastically. 
Is that a word? Fantastically? And the Lord led me to the passage of Scripture, remember where Elijah told King Ahab it wasn't going to rain for three and a half years. And then he said to Elijah, now I want you to go hide yourself by the brook Cherith. And I will send ravens there and bring food to you every day. And you can drink from the brook Cherith. Elijah thought, cool beans. All right. Got it made. And so he sits there and he's eating his food that the ravens bring and drinking water. But because of the famine, the brook began to dry up. I wonder if Elijah went out every day with a stick and just kind of, you know, checked the depth of the brook like, oh, Lord, uh, the brook, I don't know. It doesn't say. But it does say that one day the brook dried up. Now, does that mean that God has died? Hello? No. As soon as the brook dried up, but not until the brook dried up, God said to him, I want you to go to Zarephath. There I have a widow that I have instructed to take care of you. Now, what was significant about Zarephath? Zarephath was the hometown of Jezebel, the wicked queen. It was also the, the uh, a hometown of Baal, the false prophet. And so Elijah's brook dries up, and God sends him to a heathen town where he commands a widow with a small son to take care of him. You remember the story? They get there, and she trusts God, and she fixes him a little cake and something to drink, and the cruise of oil and the meal that she thought was going to be exhausted after she fixed something for him to eat. It just kind of multiplied and multiplied and kept going and on and on and on. And God took care of him there as a fantastic testimony to the watching world that there may be a famine in the land, but there's a God in heaven. You see, whenever there's a famine... There's always a God. There's always a sovereign God who has a plan. We've seen in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, those that trusted God and God led their lives and how their faith led them to action. We've seen that last two weeks in Pastor David's messages. Now chapter 12. Begin reading with me if you will. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, consider him 
who endured from sinners and such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So he's basically saying, after he gives the example of all these people that live by faith, he is now saying in chapter 12, you have a race that you are to run. These witnesses that we've talked about are watching to see how you will run your race. It's interesting, keep your finger there, and let me read to you from Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. Let us not grow weary of well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. The word weary there can also be translated in the Greek to be beaten out of your position. To be beaten out of your position. It's like running a race and you always want to be on the inside track because that's the shortest distance around the track. But as you're running, somebody's always trying to pass you and then get right in front of you and beat you out of that inner track position. And so the writer of Hebrews, excuse me, the writer of Galatians, Apostle Paul, is saying, don't be beaten out of your position or allow yourself to be cast aside maybe onto the cinders or even into the middle of the track and, and out of the race. He said, don't become weary in well-doing. And so consequently, we see that that's, uh, <laughs> that's obviously the, the trial that, that uh, God has for us, the idea of waiting. Now, how well do we wait? Do we like waiting? We like doing, don't we? We like going. We like accomplishing things. And God says, um, we need to wait. They that wait upon the Lord, what happens then? Our strength is renewed, right? And so consequently, it's the waiting. It, it's the trusting it's the time of prayer you saw uh, on, on the screen that uh, the last uh, number of days, uh, every day at one o'clock, we've been praying, Lord, would you show us a location for our next, next location? Would you open a door? We've been praying collectively as a church, been praying individually. We've been looking. Nothing has opened up. Now, I was in Wisconsin a couple of weeks ago, and preaching for a friend of mine there, and uh, told him about the need, and he said, well, Pastor, he calls me Dr. Huffman, and, and uh, uh, I have my doctorate, but I don't particularly care to be called that unless I'm working at a college like I did before. And, and so he said, Dr. Huffman, he said, haven't you always talked about LMDs? That's last-minute deliverances. I said, well, yes, I, I have used that term a lot. And he said, so is that what God's going to do for you? I said, I hope not. <laughs> Hello? You know what's better than last minute deliverances? It's yesterday deliverances, right? I mean, isn't that what we want? Don't we love to see God just answer prayers like, Funk! thank you, Lord. But sometimes God doesn't work that way, does he? Sometimes God says, I want to teach you
to wait. Are you in a waiting period yourself? Is there something that you've been praying about and it hasn't happened yet? Is God trying to teach you something? A waiting period. Colby and Emily are waiting how many days, Emily? Uh, 84. 84 days until her wedding. Oh, his too. <laughs> but they're waiting. Now, this is a time of planning, isn't it? Colby's not planning a thing other than just showing up. She's probably planning the whole wedding. But you see, when God is teaching us to wait, many times it's called a call to prayer. It reminds me of the story in Ruth. You remember the story? There was a famine in the land. And so Abimelech and Naomi, husband and wife, said, well, you know, we hear that there's bread down in Moab, so we're just going to go sojourn in Moab. Now, the Bible tells us in Leviticus 26, 19 to 20, that the famine was a result of sin. The nation of Israel had been involved in sin, so God had sent a famine. But instead of repenting of sin, or at least asking God to uh, use them in their nation to lead other people to repent of sin, they just chucked it all. Said, well, we're leaving. It's easy to run instead of wait. It's easy to quit. What was their fear? Well, there's a famine here. We might die here. Lo and behold, they go down to Moab and three-fourths of the family dies in Moab. That which they greatly feared was going to happen in Israel happened in Moab. Of course, you know the story. The two boys married two Moabitish women. One of them was named Ruth. And so Naomi, a widow, says, I've heard that there's now bread back in Bethlehem, so I'm going back home. And you girls just stay here. You can find other husbands uh, among your own people. And Ruth said, uh, no, no, I'm going with you. Your God is my God. And so when they got back home, the people said, is this Naomi? And she said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. It's a Hebrew word for bitter. Naomi had become bitter with the Lord. You know, it's easy for us to become bitter when we don't understand what God is doing. But when we're saturating ourselves with the Word of God, when we're constantly studying His Word and claiming His promises, at that point, we don't become bitter, we become better. Because as soon as I become bitter, it affects the people around me. That's what Satan loves. Whenever we get out of God's will, it doesn't just affect us. It affects somebody else. So with whatever you're waiting for, whatever the test may be, learn to trust God, learn to wait, learn to pray, learn to constantly seek His face. Now, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us how to do that. It says we're running a race. Running a race. Now, when I ran track in high school, 
There was a lot of personal preparation to be ready to run these races. A lot of wind sprints and, and, and a, lot of, uh, uh, a lot of exercise, a lot of discipline. We could not drink Coca-Colas. I thought, Lord, is it worth it? <laughs> can't have a Coke. And then they said, we can't have candy bars. I'm going, un momento, por favor. What? What do you mean we can't have candy bars? Well, it's not good for you. Don't you hate it when somebody says it's not good for you? But I stopped having candy bars. Why? Because I wanted to win the race. Because I was training. And the same thing is true for us. It says, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice those words, with endurance. So it's talking about that which takes a long time. It's not a wind sprint. It's a marathon. The Christian life is not just uh, one little spurt and then we just sit down and just relax. It's a constant test. It's constantly staying in shape. It's constantly doing what God wants us to do. Now, I've given you some verses there in your outline concerning how to make sure that, that there's no sin that's going to set you aside. And you can use those verses for your personal study when you get home. But I want you to notice the four instructions that God gives us here. Number one, run the race that is set before you. Now, the key is every one of us run a different race. For every one of us, we have a different um, plan, a different course that God has set out for us. Your race is different than mine. But every race is dependent upon knowing God's Word. And that's why this Bible right here, this is the key to knowing what does God want me to be? How does he want me to live? Who does he want me to marry? How, what, what occupation does he want me to choose? All of this is according to God's will. And so he says, run the race that is set before you. Then overcome the obstacles that would beat you out of your position. Overcome the obstacles that would beat you out of your position. You may have some friends that, that would... Uh, um, maybe just kind of try to lead you astray, try to say, oh, now, if, if, don't, don't try to live for God. There, there's no money in that. Look, look, oh, look at all the money that could be yours if you did this, if you studied this. This is the direction you need to go. Hey, let's come and have a wild time. Obstacles. Remove the obstacles. Thirdly, acquire the grace necessary to endure with joy. And that brings about patience. Acquire the grace that's necessary. The Bible says that he gives us grace for every trial that we face. Now, where do you find God's grace? That's a question. I'm waiting for an answer. In Christ. In Christ how do you know about Christ? In his word, the Holy Spirit teaches us, right? 
And so the key is reading his word and saying, Father, would the Holy Spirit direct me to know how I should respond to this situation? How, how I should, should face this limitation? All of us face different limitations in life, right? All of us face different limitations. So how are you going to respond to them? With anger, frustration, or with grace? So, acquire the grace necessary. Then fourth, keep looking to the great cloud of witnesses who are watching our race. The Bible tells us that there are a great cloud of witnesses in chapter 11. My wife's in heaven. Been there 26 months. After she passed away, the thought occurred to me, I wonder if people in heaven can see what's going on here on the earth. And so I did some study, did some reading. Came across a verse in Revelation where the martyrs were talking to God in heaven and they said, how long are our brothers there on the earth going to be going through the persecution that they're going through? Lord, how long are you going to allow that to happen? Now, how would they know what their brothers are going through on the earth if they couldn't see it? We have witnesses in heaven that are watching our race. They've already run theirs. But I am on the last leg of my journey. I'll be 78 years old this summer. Ancient and decrepit, disintegrating rapidly. But I'm not dead. And so if you're not dead, you're not done. Amen? If you're not dead, you're not done. God still has a race for me to run. And so it's my prayer that I will finish strong. Now, notice the first word in chapter 12. It says, therefore. Now, whenever you see a therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. So go back to chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and notice verse 35. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 35 says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You have need of endurance. And so consequently, the test that God has given One Hope Church and the test that God has given you is to enable you to have patience and endurance. See, God enables His children to do whatever He commands, endure whatever He appoints, and obtain whatever He promises. I'll say that again. God enables His children to do whatever He commands, endure whatever he appoints, and to obtain whatever he promises. Chapter 11 is the proof of these truths. And so consequently, we're to run our race. Now, the life of faith is one of following Christ and doing whatever he wants done. Right? 
For Noah, it was building an ark. For Abraham, it was leaving his idolatrous relatives and going to a new location. For Moses, it was forsaking the pleasures of Egypt and suffering exposure and want. For Joshua, it was conquering Jericho. For David, it was killing Goliath. For Daniel, it was trusting while God shed some lion's mouths. For you and me, it's praying and searching for a new location. But all of us are required to learn faith. And then patience. Ugh. Patience. See, you, when you're running a race, you don't get in shape overnight. Right? How many of you have ever been involved in sports? May I see your hands? Been involved? Come on, raise them up. You've been involved in sports. How many of you haven't and you're too tired to be involved in sports? Okay, all right. But when you're involved in sports, you go out for a sport and the first couple of weeks, you die. I mean, you just can hardly get through the practice, the wind sprints, the push-ups, the exercises, the suicides, and you come home every night and you say, that's it, I'm done. There's no way, I can't do this. Then the next day, your friends say, oh, I hear you've gone out for the team. Great, you go, yeah, yeah, I did. So what do you do? Well, you go out for practice again that day because your friends know you're on the team now. You don't get in shape overnight. And we don't grow in faith overnight either. That's why every new test strengthens you for the next test. It's kind of like lifting weights. If you want to build up muscles, you've got to tear down the muscles that you have by building and picking up heavier weights than you've ever picked up before. The same thing is true concerning the tests that God puts you through. I've been saved for 71 years. 71 years. Now, do you think that I've passed all the tests that God has for me? Hello? Now, wouldn't you think in 71 years, I would have passed all the tests that there are in the Christian life. Wouldn't you, I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say so? Wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that be fair? But that's not the way it is, is it? See, there are still tests of my faith that God puts in front of me and he says, are you going to trust me? Usually, the older you get, it's a test of faith concerning your health. And when the doctor says, what doesn't hurt doesn't work, you're going, yeah, my hand is up. And he says, you're in stage four kidney failure. And you're going, bleh. And he says, congestive heart failure, atrial fibrillation of your heart, diabetes, shall I go on? Are you with me? Whatever your test is, 
It's a test of trusting God. Can I trust God with this test? Now, Galatians 5, 7 says, You did run well. What did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Interesting verse. You did run well. What did hinder you? You know, the, the key thought there is, it's not speed, but rather endurance and self-discipline that's necessary. It's not speed. It's endurance. It's keeping on, keeping on self-discipline. And that's why the devil does everything he possibly can to get you to quit, to get you to give up, to get you to throw in the towel, to get you to say, it's too hard. What do the coaches always say? When it gets tough, the tough get going. Didn't you always hate that? When it gets tough, the tough get going. No pain. Yeah, no gain without pain. You know, all, all, those, all those comments that they love to make, you know, when they're trying to get in your head. But you know, it's true. It's endurance. It's the long term. And so consequently, Satan will do everything you possibly can to beat you out of your race. Now, notice it says, lay aside the weights. The weights and then the sins. Weights are things that we do voluntarily that encumber ourselves that we don't need to be doing. We don't need to be involved in them. Things that hinder you. Things that hinder your Christian life. Not necessarily sins, but they just slow you down. They blunt your spiritual appetite. They dull your conscience. Things that that, that, that you know aren't helping you to grow in the Lord. Those are weights. And then sins. Those are things that we usually excuse simply as human weaknesses. Well, I'm just human. Yeah, we're all sinful. But it's sin. Just human. The sins that easily beset us. Now, what kind of sins easily beset us. Would you say the sin of unbelief? The sin of unbelief. That when we face a new situation and we're going, Lord, really? I mean, really? And God says, really? So now what are you going to do? Do you believe that God can get you through it? Write this statement down. If God brings you to it, he'll bring you through it. If God brings you to it, he'll bring you through it. Because every test that comes your way is an opportunity for you to grow, become stronger, Become more patient, endure, get on the other side of it, and be able to give testimony 
to the watching world, let me tell you about my God. Amen? Remember when Daniel was in the lion's den? God shut the mouths of the lions. The next morning, the king comes to the mouth of the lion's den and he says, Oh, Daniel, has the God whom you serve continually been able to spare you from the lions? Daniel didn't respond. Drop dead. <laughs> if somebody throw me in the lion's den, that would have been my temptation. Interestingly, he said, has the God whom you serve continually, isn't that interesting, been able to spare you from the mouths of my lions? And he said, O king, live forever. Yes, God sent an angel and shut the mouths of these lions. Notice he didn't say anything about the lion's claws, just the lion's mouths. But the claws were tamed too. You see, the watching world is learning something about our God with this new need. They're watching you pray. They're listening to you talk about this is what our church is facing or whatever you're facing personally. They're watching to see how you respond. Do you respond with frustration? With anger or with patience, love, and trust. And so we see that God is giving us a test. Now notice verse 2. What is the object of our faith? The object of our faith looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, or perfecter of our faith. Looking unto Jesus. Whenever you're running a race, whenever you're involved in a sport, you don't listen to the crowd, because you might have a critic in the crowd. You listen to your coach. You only listen to your coach. Because it's your coach that tells you how to run, he also chooses what races you run in. When I was running track, I ran a 100-yard dash, 220, 440-yard relay, which meant 110 yards, and then three other guys ran 110 yards to beats. 880-yard relay, my lap was 220 yards, halfway around the track. But I never ran all the way around the track in a race, never until one track meet, a mile relay was coming up. My coach came to me and said, Huffman, that's never a good sign. I said, sir, he said, you're running in the mile relay. I said, oh, oh. He said, we're putting you in, the, in third position. I said, that's all the way around the track, right, sir? He said, right. I said, how do you run a 440? He said, just like you run 100. Well, I knew how to run 100. So I'm standing there waiting to get the, the baton. My man comes around. I get the baton. Off I take. I pass the guys 
that are in front of me. I'm just trucking until I hit 330 yards. Barely made it through 440. Yeah, we lost the race. But you know what? I didn't tell the coach, no, 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 I'm not running. I've never run a 440. Don't know how to do it. Don't want to do it. You don't tell the coach that you're not going to run in a race. You know, sometimes the Lord designs a segment of your race that's not any fun. Maybe you've never done it before. Maybe it's a new challenge. Maybe there are people involved that you're not getting along with. And God says, you're going to work with these people. And you're going, are you with me? That's part of your race. That's part of your test. Because the world is watching to see how you respond to those situations. Well, how do, we, how, how do we run this race? Well, the Bible says in Matthew 13, 22, by denying ourselves, denying ourselves, setting aside the cares of this life. It also talks about setting aside the deceitfulness of riches. That's an interesting topic. I deny myself by setting aside the deceitfulness of riches. Materialism is something we all have to deal with in the American culture. Maybe you don't have enough of the money and you get frustrated about that. Maybe you get upset that other people have and you don't. Maybe you do a lot of spending without really regarding, Lord, is this how you want me to spend my money? Because so many times I can have money that God is wanting me to set aside for the Lord's work. If we find a new place to rent, it may cost us twice what we're paying right now. Are you with me? Now, where's that money going to come from? We don't have bake sales and car washes. It comes from God's people who are members of our church who say, I'm going to give what God has blessed me with because I don't want the deceitfulness of riches to set me aside and get me out of the race. We are instructed to lay aside these weights. And then we're to strengthen ourselves for the race. Now, we've talked about how we do that. How we, we talked about weightlifters. You ever been in a gym where weightlifters are lifting weights? What's on the walls? Mirrors. Now, I don't feel comfortable there because they're lifting weights and then they look at themselves in the mirror. That's why I wear a coat so you can't see the lack of muscle, you know. <clears throat> why the mirrors? They want to evaluate the progress. So what is our mirror? 
to evaluate our progress. Looking unto Jesus. He's our mirror. The Bible says that we are image bearers. The Bible says in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? Verse 29, that we be conformed to the image of his Son. So the trial of our faith that is much more precious than gold, the Bible says, is designed to make us look more like Jesus. More like Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is the author and finisher. That, that, that doesn't necessarily mean the origination, but it basically means the one who takes the lead. Jesus is the one who takes the lead and lets us know how to walk the walk of faith. Do you remember when Satan was tempting him in Matthew chapter 4? He quoted the Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. How do you and I overcome temptations? Same way. Looking unto Jesus, the one who takes the lead to show us how to overcome temptations and come across victorious, knowing the Word of God. So what is the life of faith? Number one, it's a life lived in complete dependence upon God. Romans, excuse me, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all thine heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths. It's a life lived in complete dependence upon God. Secondly, it's a life lived in complete communion with God. Psalm 16 and verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Psalm 16, 8. It's a life lived in complete communion with God. In other words, all throughout my day, talking to him. Ruth and I were married for 53 and a half wonderful years. All throughout our marriage, we talked about everything. And so many times, a thought would come to my mind, I'd say, honey, what do you think about... She's been gone for 26 months. I am still thinking something. I go, honey, what? Oh. She's not there to talk to. Why is that such a habit? 53 years. That's what we did. We talked about everything. Isn't that the way God wants you and me to be? Living in complete communion with him, where we talk to him about everything. Thirdly, it's a life lived in complete obedience to God. John 8, 29, Jesus said, I do always those things that please him. I do always those things that please him. Fourthly, it's a life of assured confidence in the unseen future. A life of assured confidence in the unseen future. Hebrews 11.1, 1, <laughs> trusting God when we can't see our way clear. When we can't figure out how it's going to work out, God says, you can trust me. You can trust me. 
Somebody put it this way. How little Christianity there is in the world today. We look for comfort. He looks for conformity. We look for crowns. He looks for crosses. We look for promotions. He looks for patience. We look for praise. He looks for promise. We look for consistency. He looks for change. We look for suppers. He looks for souls. We look for fellowship. He looks for fellowship. We look for success. He looks for sacrifice. We look for the opportunity to wear fashions. He looks for the opportunity to wash feet. How little Christianity is there in the world today? And as the world is watching One Hope Church, what lessons can they learn? Well, when you take a closer look at Jesus, his motivation for suffering was the joy that was set before him. That's you and us. He looked beyond the cross to everybody who would trust in his death for their salvation. He looked beyond the suffering to the time of seated at the right hand of the throne of God when all of us would be gathered together. So what's your motivation for suffering? It's looking beyond the shame. The Bible says he despised the shame. And man, he looked down on his, the shame. He didn't, think of, he didn't consider it to be something that he was, was strongly concerned about. Shame. So many times we don't even witness because we're ashamed. Sometimes we don't even get baptized after our salvation because we're ashamed of being a Christian. Ashamed of being a church member. Shame. But he set it all aside. And then it says, he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, he finished his race. You know, that's what he's waiting for us to do. Finish our race. The Bible tells us in Revelation 14, 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. My sweet wife is resting from her labors. Oh, but the works that she put into the lives of our three boys and ten grandchildren... Those works are still going on, aren't they? Amen? And the same thing is true for you and me. When my life's work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, oh, praise the Lord, it'll be a time of rest. But now is not the time of rest. Now is the time of prayer, worship, and service. And so it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. I'm so grateful God never gives up on us when we give up on him. Amen? Philippians 1.13, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.13, it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's the finisher of your faith. In other words, 
If you simply say, Lord, I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to stop trusting. I'm not going to stop praying. But I'm going to continue to let the world know there is a God in heaven. And when that happens, there's peace in our hearts. You know, they say the best way to get a horse to move more quickly is not to apply a whip, but it's just to hit his head toward home. Just to turn his head toward home. As soon as that horse starts turning toward home, he's going to quicken his pace. That's exactly where you and I need to be. Our face needs to be headed toward home. Toward seeing him. Toward his reward. Toward his well done, thou good and faithful servant. Verse 3 tells us the ultimate battle is in our mind. In our mind. Don't let Satan control your mind. You control your spirit. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.